This morning in our study of the Psalms, we come to Psalm 37. And here again, I want to continue this little mini-series within a series of the things that can impact our efforts to do what we saw in Psalm 27, verse 4, to desire God, to desire to be with Him, to desire to uh, see His beauty, the desire to, to know Him and to know Him deeply and intimately. So here again, we're faced with another uh, obstacle in that path that hopefully we are all seeking to pursue as we enter into this new year. The psalm is quite long, so let me get to it and read it for us. Psalm 37, the very word of the living God. Psalm of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend the faithfulness. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. 
The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May He write it upon our hearts this morning and may it bear fruit in our lives. Let me pray for us as we come before the word this morning. Our God and our Father, we again ask Your blessing. This is Your word. We ask that You would speak it to us. And fulfill the promise that you have made, that it goes out and does not return to you void. That it instead accomplishes what you have purposed for it. That it is successful in the things for which you send it. Pour out your Spirit this morning upon us. To open our ears to hear and our eyes to see the things that you would have us learn. And in learning that you would make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That we might walk according to what it teaches. Father, all this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes as we're discussing our faith with non-believers, we'll get this question. Sometimes we ask it even among ourselves. If God is love, and if God loves the world, why isn't everybody saved? If God's grace is so amazing... Why is it that only some people are saved? And we answer this question, and we have a good answer. Well, salvation doesn't come to everybody. We all sin. We all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve His punishment for sin, death. Not a single person has earned mercy or forgiveness. And given the sinfulness of our sin and our rebellion against God, our hatred or enmity toward Him, The question we should be asking, we respond so often, the question we should be asking is not why so few are saved, but why are any saved? Why is it that anybody is saved? It is wonderful that God would save any, that he would have mercy on even some. And of course, in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, we also note that the Bible teaches us about God's freedom and sovereignty in choosing those whom he saves, and in raising them from death to life, to faith in Christ, giving them the faith to believe. We're very comfortable when we talk about salvation, acknowledging God's sovereignty in salvation. It's his work, and also acknowledging that it doesn't come by our work. It only comes by grace and through faith can't be a result of works, or we could boast in our own salvation. 
So as Protestants, we're very comfortable saying we're saved by faith and not by works. Salvation isn't a reward for being good. It comes just through faith. What I find a little bit ironic, (laughs) we talk that way about salvation, but when it comes to living life in this world, we tend to want to flip things around. Good people get rewarded, bad people get punished. And then we complain to God when that doesn't happen. Why do I see this wicked person successful? Why do I see this wicked, unrighteous person oppressing Christians? Why do they receive good things in this life? Why are they better off than we are? God might be sovereign in salvation, it seems, but not over life in this world. At least that's, to me, how that attitude expresses it. That earthly success of the wicked is frustrating for God's righteous people. We can look at the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, probably Solomon, David's son, sees the success of the wicked and calls it vanity, emptiness, futility, pointlessness, for all sorts of of reasons, not the least of which, they're wicked people. David sees it here in Psalm 37 as well, but whereas the preacher in Ecclesiastes really just mourns the success of the wicked, David offers us a lesson. Don't worry about it. Don't fret yourself because of evildoers. Why? Because evildoers are going to be judged. And the Lord is going to remember his righteous people. So as we continue to consider these barriers that come up as we seek to fulfill that hopefully one desire that we all have, going back to Psalm 27 verse 4, to live with God and to see his beauty and to know him deeply, Psalm 37 points us to another barrier, the, the success of the wicked. And how that plays with our thoughts and with our hearts as righteous believers in Jesus Christ. Our own sin distracts us, our enemies distract us, but here the success of the wicked distracts us from the pursuit of God. We dwell on their success despite their wickedness. And we can easily become tempted to abandon God and follow their ways. I mean, it works for them. Why should I pursue holiness when they're getting away with murder? They also turn us away from our pursuit of God because we begin to to question Him. Where is God's justice? Where is God Himself? Why would a good God allow these wicked people, these sinners, these reprobates, to have any enjoyment of life in this world? And so our eyes become distracted and turned away from that pursuit of God, seeing Him and clinging to Him and focusing upon Him. So I want to look at Psalm 37 this morning, and it's instruction for us about the wicked and about the Lord and about His righteous people. This is a little bit of a different psalm. It doesn't have an easy outline that you can separate into different verses or sections. It's kind of a collection of Proverbs. It's called by many people a wisdom psalm. 
And so I think it's easier. We've looked in, uh, I think it was Psalm 2, the, uh, the speakers in Psalm 2, there were four of them. The, the wicked person, the righteous person, God, and, and the Son. Uh, that was a dialogue. Here there's just three actors, if you will, in a drama. The wicked, the Lord, and the Lord's righteous people. I want to look at each of those in turn and some lessons that we can learn as we look at those folks from this psalm. So we begin with the wicked. Wicked people do seem to enjoy, or in fact I think they really do enjoy, some happiness, some success, some blessing of a material kind in this world. David sees this, and he notes it in the psalm. He talks about their prosperity in verses 1 and 7. It's either directly mentioned or implied. He talks about how they achieve a certain kind of glory in verse 20. He talks about their abundance in verse 16. In verse 35, he compares them to a tree, a laurel tree that spreads and flourishes, which is a very frustrating image for the righteous because we go back to Psalm 1. Wait a second, we're supposed to be the the tree planted by waters that flourishes and grows and bears its fruit in season. Why is this wicked person spreading like a tree? But what we see as well in the psalm is that their success, their prosperity, their abundance, their glory, whatever it is, whatever good that they might have in this life, what it is is temporary. It doesn't last. They get this success at least in part by carrying out their evil devices and schemes, as David writes in verse 7. They carry out their evil devices. Nonetheless, says David, they're destined to fade like grass or wither like herbs in verse 2. And this idea of destruction is repeated throughout the psalm. Verse 9 says that they will be cut off. Verse 10 that says that they will come to be no more. Verse 20 says that they will perish. Their glory is temporary like crops and pastures. They vanish and disappear. Verse 22 says that they are cursed. Verse 28 says that their own children are cut off. Their evil devices and schemes that they use to gain success or power are carried out against the righteous, in great anger against the righteous, and their ultimate goal is the death of the righteous, in verse 32. And we see this, and we, we begin to question, why does this happen? Why does God allow it? But despite this apparent success, in verse 13 we're told that God laughs at the wicked. God laughs at the wicked because he sees his day coming. The wicked are fighters who war against the poor and needy with sword and bow. But those weapons will be turned against them for their own destruction, 14 and 15. Their arms will be broken in verse 17. The arm is the the symbol of power. That power is going to be broken, taken away from them. They are evil people. They borrow with no intent to repay. They seem to spread like a tree, 
But again, their ultimate end is to pass away and be no more in verse 36. To be altogether destroyed in verse 38. And once again, repeated for the second time, their future, their children, completely cut off in verse 38. Now, biblical Christians disagree with and don't like with just cause the prosperity gospel. The name it and claim it, folks. Health, wealth, and prosperity in this life if you just have enough faith, if you just give enough money, whatever nonsense they happen to be preaching today. This focus is on the now. It's on life in this world and its fleeting treasures. We criticize it, and rightly so, at least in part because Jesus himself, later in the same Sermon on the Mount that we read from earlier, tells us to store up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth where those treasures will rust and rot and decay. So we reject the the teachings of the health and wealth and prosperity guys and their emphasis on blessing in this world. But if we complain about the abundance of the wicked, we're right back where we started. What I do in this world affects what I get in this world. If I'm good, I get good things. If I'm bad, I get bad things. That's a formula that's not really in Scripture. Or at least if it is, think about how David describes the righteous. Remember what we've seen about the righteous in the Psalms. Who is righteous? Nobody. Who earns blessing in this world? Nobody. God gave us one real chance and another kind of a shadow chance, if I could call it that. The first chance was in the garden. Do what I tell you and I will bless you forever. And Adam and Eve blew it and brought us all down with them. And then he made a covenant with the people of Israel, with Adam's descendants, Abraham's descendants. Do this and live. Obey me and I will bless you. There will be abundance in the land. And he followed through on his promise. When they obeyed him, there was abundance. Look at the reigns of David and of Solomon. But there's no one righteous. So ultimately Israel failed, as they had to, as Moses knew they would when he gave them the law. Go back and read Deuteronomy 32, his, his song. It's a song of warning. You're going to fail. God is going to punish you. So these things are fleeting. They're temporary. They don't reflect eternal reality. The reality for life in this world is really simple. God gives good things to those to whom he will give them. Just like he gives salvation to those whom he will give it. But more than that, for the wicked... These good things are fleeting. They're just temporary. Whether in this life, or certainly for eternity to come, the wicked perish and receive God's just punishment for eternity for their sin. Take the language of the psalm. David reminds us that they're cut off. They're destroyed. They are no more. They perish, they disappear, they're cursed, their children are cut off, they're broken. How many more images do we want for the destruction of the wicked? 
Whatever they have in this world is fleeting. It's temporary. And I, who wants to experience what David describes here? Destruction, perishing, disappearing, cut off, broken. So David says it three times in this psalm. What do we know about repetition in Scripture? It's a way to emphasize things. Three times he says, don't fret about evildoers, about wrongdoers. And concludes in verse 9, they will be cut off. Do not fret about these people. Don't worry about evildoers. Whatever enjoyment they have in this life is temporary. That's the best that they will ever get. Whereas we get glories for all of eternity. So don't let yourself be tempted to live like they do. Or you'll suffer the same fate. And don't let yourself be tempted to question God. Because God is going to deal with them in his own time and in his own way. So that brings us to the Lord in this psalm. We believe in the sovereignty of God and here in 37. The Lord does indeed see what's going on between the righteous and the wicked. And he takes action. <clears throat> it's interesting to see the use of the, the, the term the Lord in this psalm. Most of the times it's used, in fact all the times but one, it's in those small capital letters in your modern translations. That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am, the covenant name he has before his people. There's one time in verse 13 where we have Lord in, L is capitalized, but the rest are small letters. The, the, that emphasizes the sovereignty of God, his dominion. So most of the time, David is addressing God's covenant people and his relationship with his covenant people. And the one time where it's used to reflect his sovereignty, his dominion, it's where it says in verse 13 that the Lord laughs at the wicked. He laughs at them. This recalls to us Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 might be verse 7. I don't remember now off the top of my head. But anyway, Psalm 2. The Lord laughs at the wicked. The kings that rise up against him. So David is emphasizing this covenant relationship between God and his people and his personal care for them and over them. His enemies are our enemies. There are three times when that covenant name for the Lord God is used in verses 20, 22, and 28. And in all those cases, the, the wicked are identified as God's and our enemies, and they will be cursed. So God is active in this psalm. He's very active against the wicked. So when it says the evildoers fade like grass or wither like a green herb in verse 2, this doesn't just happen. This is God working to make it happen. And that's how we should read the things that God does to the evildoers and the protection he gives to his own people. It is the Lord who cuts off the evildoers. It doesn't just happen in verse 9. It's the Lord who makes them no more in verse 10. It doesn't just happen. It's the Lord who laughs at their rebellion. Psalm 2.4, that's what it is. He knows the day that is coming the day of their destruction, of their judgment, and of their punishment. It's the Lord who breaks the arm of the wicked in verse 17. Again, it doesn't just happen. It's the Lord who causes them to perish and vanish like smoke 
in verse 20. It doesn't just happen. It's the Lord who curses the wicked and cuts them off from the land in verse 22. What is the land in the Old Testament? It's inheritance. It's my place in society. They don't have it anymore. It's gone. What's the analog or the parallel in the New Testament? Well, it's Christ himself. We possess Christ. He is ours and we are his. Without Christ, you're doomed. You have no inheritance. You have nothing. And you have it, or you don't have it, for eternity. You're cut off from eternal blessing. It's emphasized with the judgment that comes in verse 28. Even the children are cut off. And how tragic is that? It's not a generational curse. Let's not get into that kind of silliness. But it's an image meant to portray for us the lasting and permanent judgment of God upon the wicked and the consequences of it. It's God who causes the wicked to pass away and be no more in verse 36 so that no one can find them. It's God who destroys them altogether and cuts them off in verse 38. It doesn't just happen. So David is very clear to us. Don't fret about these people. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about their success, apparently, on this earth. Yes, they're rich. Yes, they're happy. They even persecute good, righteous people. But the message from God to us through David is, don't fret about it. Don't worry about it. What did we learn last week? God will repay. I will take vengeance, says the Lord. He will judge, and he will punish the wicked. And he does it in his own time and in his own way. But what we know for sure is that it will happen for all of eternity. And that is a terrible thing to look forward to. So what should the righteous do in the meantime? If we're not to fret about evildoers, what do we do? Well, not worry about them. Don't worry about them and their success. In verse 1, we're called upon to trust the Lord and do good, to dwell in the land and be faithful in verse 3. In verse 4, to delight in the Lord. Let him give us the desires of our heart, himself, his beauty, knowledge of him. We're called upon to commit our way to the Lord, trusting that he will act. In other words, let him deal with evildoers. evildoers. Let him take Vengeance. Called upon to trust that the Lord will publicly display before others our righteousness and justice, even when wicked men do evil against us. Called upon to be still and wait for the Lord in verse 7. Again, that command not to worry about the wicked who prospers in his evil designs. Called upon in verse 8 not to be angry, not to get upset over the success of the wicked, because that only leads to more evil. Leads to, among other things, considering giving in to the temptation to be wicked ourselves and get the same success that they have. Again, leads to questioning God, turning our attention away from the Lord and toward the things of this world. We're told in verse 11 that those who are meek will inherit the land of the earth and be delighted in abundance and peace. We're passive receivers of these blessings 
from the Lord our God. These opening verses are very reminiscent, or at least anticipate, maybe is a better word because they're written before, the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus really is quoting from verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth. They'll be righteous. They'll be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. We're at war, but those who seek to bring us down and kill us will be themselves killed with their own weapons. A a, a fascinating verse in verse 16. How many of us have this attitude about life in this world? Better is the little that the righteous has and the abundance of the wicked. We don't think that way very often. I want what they got. Why do they have health and wealth and prosperity? Because it's better to be righteous than to be wicked. Because that's where true blessing lies. The righteous will be upheld in their trial. They won't be condemned 17 and 33. Whose court is that? Not the court of wicked men. The court of the Lord, before his judgment seat. Oh, wicked men will condemn us back and forth from here to you know, eternity if they could. But not in the court of the Lord. We'll be upheld, we'll be vindicated. The Lord knows his people and he knows their days and he knows their steps in verse 23. Their heritage remains forever in verse 18. They are not put to shame in verse 19. And so they have abundance in the midst of famine. In part, that's spiritual abundance, while others are spiritually in famine. But this is also the work of the church. We come together and we provide for one another. This is Paul's instruction as he was gathering up the the collection for the saints in Jerusalem who had little. He went to those who had much and said, it's time to share. While others are in the midst of famine, Paul is collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem so that they will have food to eat. That's how the church is supposed to work. They're blessed by the Lord in 22 and 29. They dwell upon the land forever. For us, that means our inheritance of Christ. We do not lose Christ. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you don't need anything else. You'll be blessed, you'll rejoice, you'll have joy and happiness for all of eternity. This is God's precious, wonderful gift to you and to me, who didn't deserve it, but to whom he's given it nonetheless, given us Christ as our Savior and friend. The righteous might stumble, but God won't allow them to fall face down. Think of the face plant. That's a powerful picture. God doesn't allow that to happen to the righteous. They're never forsaken by God in verse 25. Their children don't beg for bread. They lend generously. Again, this is the role of the church together. The church has riches beyond measure. All of us together. If we would just share it with one another, we wouldn't have any problems in the church with material issues. I've given the example before about something as simple as tithing here in the U.S. I'm sure it works the same way in the rest of the world. Most 
evangelical Christians only give about 1% to 2% of their income to the church. Think about if we just got to 5%. Think about the money, the resources the church would have to help those in need. There's no excuse for anybody going without if the church would just step up and do what we're called to do. 10%? My goodness. Talk about abundance. What do we do? We're called to turn away from evil and to do good so we might live forever in verses 27 and 28. So we become wise and just in verse 30. The law of God is on our hearts in verse 31. Our steps won't slip if this is true. So we're called upon again at the end of the psalm to wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Receive the inheritance that is yours in verse 34. His people have a future in verse 37. There is a future for the man of peace. All this is from the Lord. Salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. How do we succeed? Not in ourselves, in our own perseverance or fortitude or strength. It's because in verse 40, the Lord helps them. The Lord delivers them. Delivers them from the wicked and saves them as they take refuge in Him. So don't... (laughs) Don't fret. Don't let yourself get distracted by the apparent success of the wicked. By their happiness, by their abundance, by the good things that they have in this life. Those really aren't blessings anyway. True blessings, real blessings are are spiritual. The blessings of Christ, the blessings of knowing Him through repentance and faith. But Even Jesus, when he opened his mouth and taught on the mountain. Did you notice the character of the blessings? When we look at the Beatitudes, we we often focus on the character of the people, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. But did you ever really kind of look at the blessings and what the blessings are? The kingdom of heaven, comfort, inheriting the earth. The earth will be ours someday, the new heavens and the new earth satisfaction, mercy, seeing God. Here we are again, back to David's desire in Psalm 27.4, to see God. That's a blessing that we receive. To be called sons of God. To possess the kingdom of heaven. To receive rewards in heaven as the prophets before us. What of those is about money or food or clothing or a house or a car or the material things of this world? The blessings of God are spiritual. They begin with Christ. They are ours in and through Him. We are blessed with Him, says Paul, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1, 3. The key to this possession is Christ. It's always Christ through repentance and faith. If you've repented and believed, trusting in Him alone for your salvation from sin, from your wickedness, from God's punishment for it, 
If you have Christ, then you are blessed far beyond any wicked person. But if you don't, you're cursed. But if you don't, there's still hope. Repent and believe while the time is ripe and be saved and be blessed. It says in verse 40 of Psalm 37 that the Lord delivers his people from the wicked and saves them. Sometimes we need to be delivered from ourselves and our own wickedness through repentance and faith. This is a wisdom psalm. Be wise. Do not fret over the wicked, but look to the Lord for salvation and take refuge in Him. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, indeed, we do ask that you would help us to see Christ to see our blessings in Him, and to see those blessings as worth far more than anything that we might have or receive or experience in this life. That to know You and to be known by You is the greatest blessing that we might receive. And the greatest fear would be called by those like those about whom Christ spoke, that he never knew them. We are yours to know, and we desire to know you as well. Stir up that knowledge and desire in our hearts. Don't let us be distracted, either by our own sin, or by our enemies who rise up against us, or by the temptations presented to us in the earthly success and abundance of the wicked. Fix our eyes upon you and upon Christ, our Savior. By your word and by your spirit, turn our hearts and minds fully and completely to you. And in doing so, may this bear fruit in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.